Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest-growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica and tell her Ian sent you. Do you like fine art but think it might be out of your price range? Do you have a vision for a painting that you'd like to see brought to life but you just don't have the skill? I might have a solution for you. Art by Daisy. With decades of experience, Daisy offers high-quality, affordable watercolor paintings suitable for hanging in your home, office, or even as a gift. With prices starting at just $55, visit tinyurl.com backslash artbydaisy to find out more. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our second look at the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Now, before we get into it, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for the DeathCast, DeathCast Official, or DeathCast Pod. If you enjoy what I do and you'd like to help support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost, you can go to your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review as well as subscribe. You can also go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the deathcast, make a one-time donation, or you can go to tinyurl.com backslash decast. Patreon for as little as $2.99 a month, you can become a Patreon member, get access to exclusive content. Right now, we are in the middle of a deep dive on the Columbine School Massacre, something you will not hear in the free feed. You also get access to early release ad-free episodes. And if you're at a high enough tier, there's special perks such as stickers and t-shirts. And I'd like to thank my patrons, Channel and Anthony, for supporting this show every month. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate it. Alright, now that all that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we were talking about the fact that on June 30th, 1969, Ted Kaczynski resigned from his position at Berkeley College in the Mathematics Department. He ends up moving back home with his parents in Lombard, Illinois, just kind of in the extreme northeastern part of the state. Kaczynski worked odd jobs 
while living at his parents' house. From everything I have read, there was some difficulty between Kaczynski and his father over his decision to resign his position. However, Kaczynski's mother always kind of doted on him, even though she pushed him just as hard as her husband did. Somewhere in this period of time, Ted purchases about an acre and a half of land in Montana with his brother David. This was just outside of Lincoln, Montana. Now, in 1971, Ted says goodbye to his friends and family and heads out to this piece of land. With whatever money he has saved, a pickup truck and a tent, tools, that type of thing. And over the next few months, he begins to build for himself a log cabin. One thing of note is, very quickly after arriving in Montana, Ted's pickup truck breaks down. And from this point on, Ted either walks or rides an old bicycle that he purchases to get to wherever it is he's going. Now, if you remember in the last episode, we stated that when Ted was at Michigan State University, he later told psychologists he had something of an epiphany where he decided that he was going to kill people. Well, the reality of the matter is I think that's bullshit, and here's why. He gave a different story to many other people, that being that when he moved to Montana, the idea to kill people wasn't there. He wanted to become more self-sufficient so that he could learn to live away from society and basically just exist on his own. Ted does this. He's living out there. His brother is coming out fairly often early on to visit with him, make sure he's doing okay. Ted spends his days working on his survival skills, building this cabin, and to call it a cabin is really too nice of a term for it. It was really a shack. It was a one-room shack. In fact, later on when Ted's eventually arrested, it was noted that inside of the structure was a bed, um, a wood-burning stove, two chairs, a table, bookshelves built into the walls, and a lot of books. But at this point, when he first gets there, it's just he's building this cabin out there in the middle of nowhere by himself, living off his life savings, as well as whatever he can get from his parents, who really couldn't figure out what was going on with their son. Now, according to friends of the family, Ted's father told this individual that Ted had quit mathematics because he did not feel like teaching engineers how to build bombs and weaponry in which to kill other people with. If this is true, at least for me, Ted begins to take on more of a weather underground type persona than he does a serial killer. For those of you not aware of who the weather underground were, they were an underground leftist organization of the 1960s, 1970s that went on a bombing campaign against the U.S. government in protest of basically everything you can 
think of that was a hot-button issue at the time. They believed that the only way to get change in this country was to force change through violent acts against those they saw as their oppressors. And it's very possible that Ted may have encountered some of those individuals who were in this movement or on the fringes of it during his time at Berkeley. It wouldn't be a stretch to say that even if he did not encounter any of those individuals, he almost certainly encountered people who sided with the radical left as far as their political ideology. In any event, Ted is out living in the woods, he's building the cabin, he's living off his life savings, getting money from his parents, his brother, when he comes out, is helping him. Ted also started doing odd jobs in and around Lincoln, but he also would work for the locals. Any type of job that they came up with, Ted was willing to put his hand in and, you know, earn some extra cash. In addition to this, though, Ted was also going out and scavenging. You have to understand this area of Montana where he's at is extremely, extremely remote. So it was very easy for him to slip onto these parcels of land where he knew other individuals lived and scavenge through their junk piles. I know some people are scratching their heads. Why would they have junk piles on your, their property that's the way it is out west you've broken down cars scrap metals that type of thing it's a very common sight in montana it's even more so because if you're living you know 200 miles from the nearest junkyard you're not gonna pay to have somebody come and tow your vehicle to the junkyard you put it out on the back of the property and the next thing you know you've got a small area where devices that are no longer needed are kept residents who knew ted later stated that his lifestyle out there was not that uncommon for people living out there many people do go to montana for that life type of lifestyle they just want to escape and get away from society as a whole he was said to be a hard-working individual not overly friendly but not standoffish in fact the local librarian stated that ted would come into the library often in order to read quote the classics in their native tongue and that is something that ted started doing is ordering books through this library i'm assuming with the money he was earning working various odd jobs and reading them and squirreling them away inside of this cabin when he wasn't doing that working the odd jobs he's out hunting and fishing learning to live off of the land stories have come out in the years since ted's capture and eventual demise that he was so detached from society that he would walk down the road to a nearby family, that being Butch and Wendy Gehring, and ask them to let him know when a certain date arrived, such as, you know, he's got a doctor's appointment, whatever it was, he would ask them to do it. And they would in turn turn around and let Ted know when this happened. One instance giving by the Gehrings in a story published in the Washington Post is that Ted came and asked them 
when a specific Thursday was going because he was going to catch a bus to visit his brother, and when they asked him why, Ked became defensive, telling them that it was none of their business. They responded with, you know, they're just curious, and Ted replied that curiosity killed the cat. And it's in this setting, Ted also really begins to write letters in earnest to individuals. Some of these people he encountered through magazines that he got his hands on at the local library. Others, it's less certain of how he got their addresses. It's known that he had a friend in Mexico who Ted was said to be quite close with, that he conversed with fairly often. It's one of those things that I have encountered commentators stating that they believe that Kaczynski wrote letters to people in as great a volume as he did, as he found it easier to communicate and to connect with people using the written word rather than vocalizing, you know, his thoughts and his feelings. And among all of this were various trips, whether it was to go see his brother or to go see his parents. Ted would make on occasion trips to go and visit, and oftentimes when he went to visit his parents, it was to get money from them and really harangue them on the way he felt that he had been mistreated by them. It's also known that at various times, he would actually leave the state for extended periods of time in order to go work and earn more money. And it's at this point in the mid-1970s, as Ted is living his, you know, dream life, that he starts really noticing that a lot of developers are coming into the area and destroying it by putting in roads and new houses and cutting down the trees and diverting streams and rivers. And as all of this is happening, thoughts begin really creeping into Ted's mind that this isn't right, these people have no right to do this, they must be stopped. Quote an interview that Kaczynski gave after his arrest Quote, it's kind of rolling country, not flat, and when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very steeply into cliff-like drop-offs, and there was even a waterfall there. It was about a two days hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some peace. I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was from that point on I decided that rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. Kaczynski says that this took place in 1983. However, it is known that as far back as 1975, he had already begun booby-trapping and sabotaging equipment of workers in the area making it so that they could not operate their bulldozers or their logging trucks. Anything that he could get his hands on, he would disable in whatever way he could. Which again brings to mind, to me, the far-left extremists of the 1960s, early 1970s. And his brother later stated in interviews that it's 
somewhere in this time period, 75, 76, he started noticing changes in his brother. He was becoming more standoffish. He had never been an easy individual to get along with. Now he was becoming nearly impossible to get along with. And he started talking about a lot of what to his brother was very far out ideas. The ideas of, you know, the evils of modern society and technology. He told his brother that he was reading about sociology and political philosophy. One of the individuals that he started reading was an individual by the name of Jacques Ellul. Ellul was a French philosopher, sociologist, theologian, professor, and a Christian anarchist. Specifically, Ted focused on a book by called The Technological Society, which was originally published in 1954. Taking this summary from Wikipedia because it's the most concise, condensed summary of this book that I, I was able to find. Alul argues that modern society is being dominated by technique, which he defines as a series of means that are established to achieve an end. Technique is ultimately focused on the concept of efficiency. The term technique is to be comp comprehended in its broadest possible meaning as it touches upon virtually all areas of life, including science, automation, but also politics and human relations. Ted's brother, David, stated that this book basically became his brother's Bible. He lived by this book. And it's thought that by many that from this book, really the seeds of what would become known as Ted's Manifesto merged. Commenting on the book in 1998, Kaczynski stated, When I read the book for the first time, I was delighted because I thought, here is someone who is saying what I've already been thinking. So now we have Ted. It's the mid-1970s. He's inundating himself with all of these very high ideas, he's also isolating himself from the majority of society, except for those who are around him, his family, i.e. his brother and father, coming to visit on occasion, and he going to visit them. But really, while he's out there in the middle of the woods, Ted has a lot of time to think and to ponder over what is to be done with the question of modern society. He didn't just keep these thoughts inside of his head. He actually kept many, many journals. And referring back to an article written by Alston Chase in June of 2000 in The Atlantic, he outlines a portion of one of Ted's many, many journals, and this is from prior to the bombing spree beginning. Quote, I intend to start killing people. If I am successful at this, it is possible that when I am caught not alive, I fervently hope. There will be some speculation in the news media as to my motives for killing. If some speculation occurs, they are bound to make me out to be a sickie and to ascribe to me motives of a sordid or sick type. Of course, the term sick in such a context represents a value judgment. The news media may have something to say about me when I am killed or caught, and they are bound to try to analyze my 
psychology and depict me as sick. This powerful bias should be born in mind in reading any attempts to analyze my psychology. You couple that mentality with something that Kaczynski wrote in 1971 in which he says, In these pages it is argued that continued scientific and technological progress will inevitably result in the extinction of individual liberty. Conceive that Ted's mindset is slowly shifting from one of thinking about a problem, going over it from every conceivable angle, and then, you know, much like mathematics or, you know, science, coming to an Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Inevitable conclusion, which in this case is Ted decides that he is going to start building bombs. Some sources state that as Kaczynski is formulating these ideas in his mind, the idea of going out and simply murdering an individual occurred to him, specifically a scientist. However, Ted discounted this as not impactful enough. It's known that by the mid to late 70s, he was experimenting with explosive devices and that the majority of these devices were handcrafted items that he found inside of people's junkyards or scavenged from other places that he had access to. These explosive devices were much more complicated than an individual such as myself would be able to meet, but later on when packages that were not exploded were found, the FBI said that while they were extremely simplistic, they also were brilliant in their complexity and very, very effective. On May 25th, 1978, a Secretary at Northwestern University was walking across a parking lot near Northwestern University where she encountered a package with a return address of Professor Buckley Crist. And she gets this package back to Crist, and there it sits in his office. Two days later, Christ encounters this package and is perplexed by it as he cannot recall having sent it. Christ contacts campus security and Officer Terry Marker arrives to inspect the package. When he opens the package, a rubber band that was inside snaps and sets off six match heads. Marker ends up with some cuts and bruises on his body, a little singeing from it. And at the time, it really didn't make national news, as we're, you know, not even a full decade removed from the 1960s. Yes, it did make 
regional reports that, you know, a bomb had been sent to a professor, but outside of that and the FBI, really no one in the United States paid much mind to it. It was described as a very primitive bomb designed to do little more than scare and possibly slightly injure the individual who opened it, although FBI experts at the time suspected that the individual responsible for this more likely than not had a grudge against Christ and had probably been hoping for something more to happen. The police had little to go on except for, you know, the smoldering remains of this parcel. Nobody had seen anyone place the bomb inside of the parking lot. There were no fingerprints, no eyewitnesses, nothing. So while they continued to look into it, really there was nothing, nowhere to, for them to go with this particular case. On May 10th, 1979, another package was sent. This article is from the Chicago Tribune with a byline by Patricia Leeds. A Northwest University graduate researcher suffered shock and burns Wednesday when a bomb in a cigar box exploded as he opened it in a study room of the school's technological institute. John G. Harris, 35, a native of Toronto, was treated at Evanston Hospital for cuts on his arms and burns. Around his eyes, police said the force of the blast blew his eyeglasses off his face and singed his eyebrows and lashes. A fellow student, Bushan Karalu of Newcastle, Australia, said he was in a study cubicle a few feet away when I heard a very loud bang and then screams. He said he saw what looked like pellets left over from an explosive material similar to that in firecrackers in the bottom of the cigar box. A university spokesman said the bomb had been rigged with batteries and wires. It apparently had sat for several hours before Harris opened it. Police were at a loss to explain what material was used to set off the blast or what the motive for building the device was. Karahalu said he, Harris, and several other graduate students had been conducting research related to metal fatigue in the study room or the second floor of the Institute building at 2145 North Sheridan Road. So again, we have another random attack. This one, again, is targeted at Northwest University. And although police publicly stated they didn't really know a motive behind it behind the scenes they were scratching their heads and little around a year they'd had two bombs go off at this school however whereas one had targeted a specific individual the second bomb had seemingly been planted at random again the fbi did speak with local law enforcement, but there really was no reason for the FBI to get heavily involved at this point, but that was about to change. On November 15th of 1979, American Airlines Flight 444 was en route from Chicago to Washington, D.C.'s National Airport. 
This is a fairly large commercial jetliner, a 727. Unbeknownst to those on board this flight, Ted Kaczynski had placed a pipe bomb in the mail and set it to go off when the plane reached a certain altitude. When this happened, the bomb partially goes off as the bomb caused a quote-unquote sucking explosion and loss of pressure, after which the passenger compartment filled with smoke and the aircraft was forced to do an emergency landing at Dole's International Airport, which is in Virginia. And it's at this point that the FBI really gets involved because then, as is now, bombing a or attacking an aircraft is a federal offense. So investigators get involved in this and they fairly quickly figure out that this bomb is very similar in terms of how it was constructed two bombs that were set off at Northwest University, and it's from this bombing that Ted Kaczynski gets his moniker, the Unabomber, University and Airline Bomber. And it's really this attack that sets off the chain of events that's going to go on for the next 16 years. So now you can see that Ted is really branching out in his attacks. The first two were against University of Michigan, who obviously he had a history with. But now he's switched and he's taking aim at targets outside of universities. This is the first such target. However, it would not be the last. Months go by without any further attacks until June 10th, of 1980. It's when a United Airlines executive by the name of Percy A. Wood, who is age 60, received a package at his Lake Forest, Illinois home. Now, Wood was at work that day. He came home that evening, found the package, and proceeded to open it. The package then explodes in his vase, seriously injuring Wood who was said to have lacerations and various cuts. Now this crime, because it was sent through the post, was taken over by the U.S. Postal Service. However, the FBI as well as the ATF got involved on this one because now they're starting to believe that all of these bombings may be connected. However, they're not really putting it out there too much to the public. I'm quoting an article here from the Moline, Illinois Dispatch, dated Wednesday, June 11th, 1980. Chicago FBI spokesman George Mandich said the explosive was contained in not too big a package delivered to Woods' home in the wealthy Lakeshore suburb north of Chicago. He said he knew of no history of threats to Wood or the company. Thus far, no persons or organizations have claimed responsibility in the bombing, Mandich said. Wood underwent surgery late Tuesday to remove fragments of the bomb from his face and hands. 
Lake Forest Hospital spokesman Joyce Fitzgerald said Wood had suffered extensive cuts and lacerations to the left side of his face, his left hand, and left leg. Doctors said Wood suffered no permanent damage, Miss Fitzgerald said, but added that he may require plastic surgery. According to police and the FBI, the incident occurred at Wood's home at approximately 3.48 p.m. Police Chief Bernard Praise said Wood was alone in the house at the time of the explosion. Praise said the airline executive told him the bomb was contained in a paper-wrapped package he took from the home's roadside mailbox. Praise described the bomb as being disguised as a book, approximately 2 inches by 5 inches by 7 inches. The package, which apparently contained a pipe bomb, exploded as Wood was opening it in the kitchen, Praise said. He said that following this explosion, Wood walked to the house of neighbors who summoned the ambulance and police. Now, there are conflicting stories out there concerning where the name Unabomber actually came from. I know I spoke earlier about how Kaczynski got the FBI designation of Unabomber from the bombing of the airline flight. However, some sources state that it actually came from this particular attack, and these sources state that the UNA stands for United Airlines. However, I've only seen that in one place. I just want to point that out should you look into this case on your own and stumble across that piece of information. I have never seen it listed anywhere else that this particular attack, Kaczynski's fourth bombing, is what resulted in him getting the designation as the Unabomber. However, this attack did lead to the a task force being assembled that involved the United States Post Office and the FBI. And it was noted with this bomb, as with the other three, that they were all of a very similar design. It was said that all of them bore very similar hallmarks, such as a very simplistic ignition device, as well as parts seemingly put in at random, taking from various different devices. It was also noted that, as with the other three bombs, the wood used in the construction of these devices was very low quality. If you look at some pictures of the bombs that Kaczynski had built, it's apparent that some of them were constructed using something similar to balsa wood, which, if you're familiar with wood in any way, shape, or form, you know is very thin, soft, flimsy wood. And it's more likely than not that the wood that he was getting was either scavenged from somewhere or else it was the cheapest available wood that he could get his hands on. The task force is looking around trying to figure things out. They very quickly link the Northwest University attacks with these two attacks based on similarities between the bombs. And one thing that was noted about the first attack was that there was actually a return address on that first package that went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is located in Troy, New York. 
What people didn't know is that Kaczynski would either travel to the designated place of an attack himself and plant the bomb, or else he would get on a bus and travel a long distance in order to put distance between where he lived and where the attack was going to take place. And he was able to do this with an extremely high amount of anonymity because he was living so far off the beaten path of modern society. So this task force, they're looking around, they're looking primarily at university students because the first two attacks had occurred at universities. Eventually, they're going to branch out from looking at just universities and see if anyone from Northwest University ended up working in the airline industry. Their thought process on this is you've got a disgruntled student who's also working in this industry and is now angry at this industry. I mentioned earlier that Ted is believed to have worked at some point in 1980 in the state of Utah doing construction. We know this from his own accounts, as well as individuals who came forward and stated that Kaczynski was working for their company during this period of time. And one portion of this that is often overlooked is the fact that Kaczynski's next attack actually takes place in Utah when it's known that he was there or had very recently been there. And if you think about how meticulous Kaczynski has been up until this point in terms of making certain that he can't be traced back to a given location, it's pretty amazing that he chose to attack a university in a state that he was currently in. Before we get into what actually happened, I know there's some people wondering why Kaczynski, since he's so against society as it stood then and even as it stands now, why he would go out and take these jobs working for construction companies, and it's fairly simple to understand. His parents can't completely foot every bill that he has, nor can he rely on any kind of steady employment where he's living because he's not willing to become a full-time employee. He had the bills that had to be paid. Specifically, he had to stay up on his driver's license, which up until the time of his arrest was current. But he also had taxes that need to be paid on the property that he and his brother had to take. So it's very probable that he was willing to put his moral convictions aside for the better good of everything, in this case, making certain that he still is able to own that piece of property, which is giving him so much freedom to live life as he chooses. Now, on December 8th, 1981, a student at the University of Utah was going into one of the campus's computer mainframe rooms when they noticed an extremely large package outside of the this room. And this student moves the package out of the way, but eventually thinks better of it and goes and contacts campus security, who come and take the 
unusual step of removing this package and detonating it inside of a woman's bathroom before reaching out to the FBI and letting them know that, hey, we've had this package located on our campus, we have detonated it, we need you guys to come out and check it out. This should give you an idea as to how not only news traveled more slowly back in this day and age, but also how little news coverage the bombings as being connected were, were getting at this point. Going over the remains of this exploded device, the FBI found small pieces of metal, one of which was stamped with a moniker, FC. They had seen this particular set of initials before in the prior bombing, so they were very easily able to link the package with those of the previous four. Although they had no idea what the FC stood for at this period of time, and in fact would not know what it stood for until after Kaczynski was arrested. According to his Kaczynski, FC stood for Freedom Club. Now, some have speculated that he did this in an attempt to make it appear that there was a much larger organization at work than just one lone individual out in the wilds of... Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Montana. Well, others have speculated that this was Kaczynski's way of dealing with the isolation that he was imposing upon himself, creating this imaginary organization of which he was the president or head, whatever you want to put it. Regardless, this particular clue baffled police for over the next decade as they could not find any listing of it anywhere outside of the bombs sent by the Unabomber. Now, I have read some articles stating that, you know, the reason Kaczynski spaced out his attacks the way he did is because he was going through the typical serial killer cooling off period as i stated in the first episode i don't believe kaczynski was a serial killer the fbi's criteria for someone being labeled a serial killer is having killed three or more people over a considerable length of time that's it they give us that definition However, there are many individuals who are listed by law enforcement as serial killers who were only known to have killed one person. Doesn't work that way, it's one or the other. Having the intent to become a serial killer and not achieving that status does not a serial killer make. And as I stated, I don't think that was Kaczynski's mental makeup. I believe the human casualties of his terror campaign were 
what the military and our government would consider collateral damage, meaning it's a shame they died, but they were there and we were carrying out a operation. That's really how I think that Kaczynski looked at what he was doing, is he was carrying out an operation. Yes, he did target specific people in the hopes of killing them, but his were much more premeditated than that of a serial killer who seemingly strike at random when opportunity and desire meet. Kaczynski was very methodical in his targeting of individuals as well as in his preparations for these attacks. The FBI now, they're really looking for possible suspects, and they cannot come up with anybody. Meanwhile, Ted has continued on with his life as though nothing has taken place. He's writing to his various pen pals, his brother, his parents, and one thing that was noted by Ted's brother David is that the letters that Ted began sending slowly they began to get more aggressive and accusatory, particularly when it concerned his parents. However, Ted still allowed his brother into his life in some fashion. David took a similar tact as Ted did in that he rejected modern society, and in point of fact, in 1984... He bought a plot of land in Brewster County, Texas. Just as his brother had done, David ends up building a cabin out there, but prior to this, he digs a hole in the desert and covers the entrance with sheets of sheet metal, which he lives inside of while he is working on constructing this cabin. David also does odd jobs just as his brother had done. However, he does not end up stepping over that line, so there is a kinship between the two of them at this point in time. Now, back in 1982, specifically May 5th, Kaczynski strikes yet again, this time at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. This article that I'm about to read comes from May 6th of 1982 from the Tennessean in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's by Randy Hillman. Letter bomb blast hurts VU secretary. A Vanderbilt University secretary was injured yesterday when a homemade bomb mailed to her office and a package exploded in her hands as she opened it. Janet Smith 39 of 4420 Prescott Road, a secretary to Dr. Patrick Fisher, head of Vanderbilt's computer science department, was taken by ambulance to Vanderbilt Hospital. Her condition was reported as good. She suffered powdered burns and cuts to her chest, arms, and hands and underwent surgery to suture the larger cuts, a hospital spokesman said. Ben Purser, Nashville FBI agent in charge, said jurisdiction in the case rests with the investigative arm of the U.S. Postal Service. However, he said the FBI will stay in touch with the case. A postal inspector at the scene refused to talk to reporters. Purser described the bomb as a low-order explosive, but said he had no idea how it was constructed. 
After the 4 p.m. blast in an office in the engineering building, the university received an additional bomb threat at Light Hall, possibly by the same woman who telephoned a similar threat at the same location two nights ago, a university spokesman said. Bomb threats at colleges are not uncommon. However, I do want to point out, lest anyone hear that piece about someone calling in bomb threats, Kaczynski is not known to have made this kind of action during the course of his bombing career. So I don't want you to go grabbing a hold of that and running with the conspiracy that Kaczynski had other people involved in his activities. That's not the case. Kaczynski worked strictly alone. Now this particular tack was a little bit different from the others as it had actually been forwarded to Professor Fisher from his old job at Penn State University. Fisher hadn't worked at Penn State in over two years at this point, and it's very possible that Kaczynski encountered him at some point and decided that he would make a good target. However, given his limited ability to find out where individuals were currently at, he simply sent it to the last known job that Fisher had had. Noted on this particular package was the fact that it had been mailed from Brigham Young University in Utah. So again, we see Ted is now going into Utah quite a bit to work as well as carry out attacks and now to mail packages for further attacks. On July 2nd, 1982, Kaczynski turns his attention back to his old place of employment, the University of Berkeley in California. Diognese Angelaxo, who is a computer science professor, finds a package inside the teacher's lounge at Berkeley University. It's an odd package. It's got dials on the outside of it and a handle. The professor ends up picking this up and it goes off in his hands. And he ends up suffering shrapnel to his body along with a pretty decent amount of burns to his body. The FBI is called in, they start looking at it and they very quickly realize that the bomb has similar markings inside of it, namely the FC engraving on a piece of metal. And they're therefore able to deduce that this came from the same individual or individuals who had sent the previous bombs. There was more inside of this package as well. There was a note located with the package that read, quote, Woo, it works. I told you it would RV. This is again Kaczynski trying to throw law enforcement off the trail while continuing to sow terror. He's putting the FC inside of it, but he's also including these, this letter, which I don't believe was intended to be incinerated by the blast. Kaczynski was smart enough 
that I think he intentionally put this inside of the package knowing that the bomb wasn't strong enough to destroy this particular piece of evidence and would therefore lead police on a wild goose chase as they attempted to track down who the two individuals mentioned in this letter could possibly be. While publicly, law enforcement officials said, you know, they were seeking who this individual was, internally, everyone was scratching their heads because they couldn't fathom who could be responsible for this. They had no forensic evidence that they could link back to anybody. But additionally, they didn't even have any eyewitnesses. And in fact, it would be a number of years before they did get any eyewitnesses who could put some semblance of a face to the individual sending out these bombs. It was noted, though, by both the FBI and the postal inspector's office that the devices were becoming more sophisticated and their explosive power was becoming greater. Basically, what Kaczynski was doing with a number of these bombs is he was putting a pipe bomb inside of it with a device rig to set it off, either next to or inside of a can of gasoline. And whether it was because he was still learning what he was doing or because Kaczynski was becoming more comfortable with what it was that he was doing, each device was a little bit more powerful than the one that preceded it. And this caused a lot of concern for law enforcement because how long is it going to be before one of these this guy's devices actually takes an individual's life? After this point in 1982, there's not going to be any more bombs that have been associated to, with Ted Kaczynski for a number of years, at least not until 1985. Because of that, we're going to leave off the episode here with Ted having sent his first seven bombs, the FBI and the U.S. Postal Service scrambling to try and figure out who is having done this thing, and Kaczynski hiding what he's doing from not only those in his community in Montana, but also from his family and anyone else that he has encountered. Until next week, the Deathcast is a joint production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasting. Stay morbid! Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite.